this week's bumper episode, I speak to five amazing women in the industry, including director Claudia Weil about her cult hit, Girlfriends. It's like Mike Nichols said famously, you know, it's like sex. You think everybody else knows what they're doing. So true. How do you know? I also speak to Sean Hader and Amelia Jones about making Coda and to two stars of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, whom I collared at the Cannes Film Festival. Bon appétit. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film. I'm your host, Anna Smith. And as promised, we've got a goodie bag of feminist film treats for you today. My first guest is Claudia Weil, whose 1978 directorial debut, Girlfriends, was re-released in July. The comedy drama follows a 20-something photographer as her roommate moves out of their Manhattan apartment. I spoke to Claudia about the feminist classic as part of the BFI's Woman with a Movie Camera Summit. Welcome, Claudia. Talk to me first about the inspiration behind Girlfriends, because it's such an iconic film to so many people. Oh, okay, that's a good one. Yeah, so... Girlfriends was kind of, I mean, the inspiration was what was happening in my own life, right? Both my sisters, all my girlfriends were getting married, and I wasn't. Uh, I felt like a freak. And I mean, emotionally, the loss that Susan experiences is kind of what I went through over and over. So I thought, well, let's make a film about it. Start from what you know. That's such a true thing. And I think Girlfriends is a great example of that because it's clearly coming from such a great place of truth, which makes it very relatable. But also I've heard you speak about the idea that the central character is someone who's usually the sidekick in other movies and you wanted her to be at the middle. I love that. Tell me more about that. Well, you know, the sort of funny, quirky, kind of slightly overweight, you know, not the perfect young woman, not the blonde with the perfect features and 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 so forth you know not the mary tyler moore character you know but the sidekick the rhoda character you know i was a rhoda and it became i mean i think protagonism is very political who is the subject of your film tells you about your values and i mean that's kind of intellectual when i'm saying that but i was trying to say well i'm worth having a film about Or people like me, you know, the sidekick is just as interesting as the so-called leading lady. We're all interesting. And what kind of challenges did you come up against, if any, about making a film with that kind of protagonist? Well, since the roots I was was going were grants, you know, from the AFI, New York State Council for the Art, National Endowment for the Art, there weren't any barriers subject-wise. You know, I think if I had tried to go to Hollywood and get this finance, I wouldn't have had a chance, right? But it was basically made with grants. And, and then finally, a kind of tiny bit of finishing money that, was, that I raised. But by then, they could see enough of the film to understand why they should invest in it. And once you were on set directing, mm-hmm. is there a moment where you kind of felt, oh, wow, I'm so happy this is all coming together? Or was it all completely nerve-wracking? 
it was pretty nerve-wracking. You know, I get really anxious. I think a lot of people do. You know, I teach a lot. I teach directing a lot. And all the students are anxious. And I, 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 I try and tell them everybody is. Doesn't matter how many films you make. But I was really an innocent, you know. So I remember the first day of the shoot of Girlfriends. Fred Murphy and I were on 79th and Broadway. And Melanie and Anita were in the island. And they were supposed to cross towards us. And we were there. And he started rolling. He said rolling. And after he said rolling, I didn't understand why they weren't, why they didn't start walking towards us. And I asked Fred, what, why aren't they walking? And he said, you have to say action. You know, and I thought, I, I didn't understand. I thought action was some like movie version <laughs> of, of how it happened. Like, you know, like a, like a guy in jodhpurs with a whip and a bullhorn. You know, I thought saying action was sort of a, a dramatized notion of movie. I didn't realize it was actually had a function. You know, it's, it's that kind of naivete, you see. Well, I guess when you're direct, you never really see other directors doing their jobs and no. doing it independently. So that must be quite a weird feeling. It's like Mike Nichols said famously, you know, it's like sex. You think everybody else knows what they're doing. So true. How do you know? <laughs> Tell me about some key scenes in the film, either that you have really strong memories of or that people have really responded to or both. I think people respond to the relationship between Susan and Anne. So there are a lot of those scenes. Some of the scenes that stand out for me are the scenes with Eli Wallach, you know, the ones in the office, both the one at night where she talks about wanting to be a rabbi and, and they sort of make this wonderful, playful connection. And the other scene that I love from The Office is when she comes to meet him as they had arranged on Sunday to get brunch and his wife walks in and she's completely casual. She's not suspicious. She's just picking up the tickets for the football game they're going to. I love some of those. Those are some of my favorite scenes. I did try to call you. He managed to get the tickets at the last minute. Yes, Jesse. Yes. Well, it's... Isn't the Shifa Auditorium large enough? I don't know how I let myself get talking to this one, but this is the last one, Aaron. How many hours? You need two hours. Well, how many chairs? 300 pounds of fruit. That's, that's a lot of fruit, isn't it, Jesse? It's the last time, Aaron. Yes. Yes, Jesse. Right. Hello. Hi. You ever been to a football game? No. You keep it that way. Eleanor, this is Susan Weinblatt. Susan, this is my wife, Eleanor. Right, yes, yeah, that's terrific, yeah. He's a great character, and also Chris Guest. So, you know, he wasn't playing the boyfriend. He was a specific, idiosyncratic, strange wit, but very vulnerable, you know? Just love those scenes, too. I don't know, I have plenty of scenes I don't like. I'm not going to tell you which ones. Oh, really? (laughs) I can't believe that, because they're Yeah, that's true, it's true. Are there anything that you wanted to put in the film that you didn't have a chance to in the final edit? No, you know, I think the process of editing a film is like, it's like making a sculpture. You take out what's not necessary and you're left with what's essential. I think a lot of things happened in editing that changed the film a bit. Finally, all films are documentaries, even narrative films, because you, what's the footage telling you? What's the performance telling you? what's the, what are the the moments that are vital and that, you know, touch you? Yes, hopefully they're similar to the script, 
what was important in the script. But if it's not, you have to go, you have to either go with the footage or you have to recreate what the script intended somehow, if you haven't gotten it in a scene. And for instance, the ending of the film originally was a scene up in the country there with Susan and Anne, and they're by the fire, they're doing Fuzzy Duck. And then both Martin, uh, Chris Guest's character, arrive, and there's a scene between the four of them. And I knew as we were shooting it, this is not the right scene to end the film on. It's just not that, I don't know what's wrong with it. You know, I thought it tied up all the stories, Susan and Anne, Susan and Eric, blah, 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 the marriage. Blah, blah. But as I was editing, I realized the really important thing, the film is about Susan mostly. And so we need to follow Susan's arc. And, you know, I was talking to a friend about it and he said, so what do you want to say? And I said, well, I guess in the beginning, Susan is completely shook when Anne gets married and leaves her alone. And by the end, when Martin arrives, and it's just now in our minds, it's just Martin alone. She says, Martin, she's okay. She's fine. She's fine on her own. She's grown herself a life, a soul, a self, right? But I hadn't shot that, right? So I had to, like a documentary, pick through all the little pieces of film. And coming from documentary, I tend to tell Fred or whoever's shooting to start rolling even before I say roll and to keep rolling even after I say cut so that I have moments of relaxation or whatever that actors will do in between takes or just thinking. And so I found some footage of, there was this one shot of, of Anne saying, oh, oh, it's Martin. And they were pretty drunk because we were using real tequila. And then there was a shot that must have been after a take and before another one where, where Susan just kind of looks down and smiles. And that was the end of the film. So, you know, it was just a serendipitous little piece of film. And it wasn't a very long piece of film, so we had to freeze on it. But and that's, but that's the ending of the film. And the whole that whole end scene was discarded. I wanted to talk about one of the themes that really appeals to me obviously yeah. there's a lot about female friendship which is fantastic but also I was really impressed with the idea of women supporting women in their careers you know the idea that one photographer would say to another look you're not pushing yourself hard enough you should speak to this person and you know helping each other out yes I'm envious of you for getting a show but hey let me help you all that fantastic talk to me more about that well, it was very much the ethos of the moment. It was the 70s. It was the beginning of second wave feminism. We were all beginning to realize how we'd been set up to compete with each other. Right. And we're trying to compensate. You know, it was the beginning of the kind of notion of sisterhood is powerful. The few of us who were working together, like Honor Moore, the, the poet, whose poems and we used for Anne. She said, I'm going to invest in your film. I'm going to invest my, my sister. And she's going to work as your PA for the whole film. I'm going to pay her. You know, stuff like that. You know, we, we were really invested in each other on every level. As girlfriends, 
as friends. And I think that's what I was experiencing then. And the film comes out of that, I think, or reflects it. It's interesting that it's something that we're talking about on my podcast, Girls on Film, now that we really? feel like is a kind of another resurgence and a time when women with Time's Up and Me Too, and, mm-hmm. you know, a time when women need to do that again because a lot of actresses have been pitted against each other and now finally talking to each other. I mean, do you feel that it's kind of cyclical? Um, you know, Do you feel that things have gone back since the 70s and need sort of to return to where you were then? I, it's a hard question to answer. I, I don't think it's, well, maybe it is cyclical. I, I think identity politics is very confusing, you know? I mean, I think we're we're trying to think broader now, in a way, trying to understand and identify with women of color, indigenous women, you know, not just all us white broads who have gone to college and have this privilege and advantage to be making these films in the first place. I, I think that's, a lot what's changed. Thinking of representation, I mean, obviously your character is Jewish and we explore her life in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think is the importance for you of showing Jewish young women on the screen and the, and the kind of decisions that they make in their lives? I think it's important. I mean, when I was growing up, there were some very horrible fe- uh, fem- Jewish female stereotypes. The overbearing mother who dominates her, her sons, especially. You know, which came out of all these uh, Jewish families coming from Europe where the husband was the Torah scholar or the Talmud scholar. And the woman had to support the whole family and manage the kids and do everything. Of course, she became a balabosta. But then it became a stereotype, right? Of this overbearing woman, a la Portnoy and so forth. And then there was always the Jewish American princess, you know, who's entitled and incompetent. Somewhat like the, you know, the daughter in like, uh, what's her name? Berlin in, in Heartbreak Kid, Len May's daughter, you know? So, so I wanted to show a Jewish character that wasn't a stereotype. It was just one of the aspects of who she was. And the scene when she talks about wanting to be a rabbi is one of my favorites. I thought that's right. a lovely scene. And I just that comes straight out of my, that's the, my grandfather. My, my father's family was Orthodox. So that was something I, I realized very young that what he was doing, you know, on, on Shabbat in the morning, rapping to fill in, it was, he was talking to God. I thought that was cool. I would like to talk to God, you know, and he, I was kicked out too, you know, so the story came out of my own life. I mean, it looked like God was right there in the room with him. So I started to open the door slowly. But he saw me. And he said, very quietly, he said, get out. So I decided that if he wasn't going to let me talk to God, I would just have to talk to God myself. And once the film was out there, um, Mm -hmm. what kind of reactions did you have immediately? Because obviously it's now considered seminal, but um, what kind of response did it have at the beginning? I think people were surprised to like it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, they gen, people genuinely liked it, but they, it made them feel good to like it because they were liking something that was unconventional, an offbeat heroine that wasn't conventionally pretty, not the usual protagonist. So they felt it made them feel good in a way, you know, it, because it's kind of stretched their zone, but they, but they 
genuinely liked it. I think one of the things that was really important to me in terms of the film was the tone. You know, this coming of age, this becoming herself is a big deal. It's a big struggle. It's hard work. She needs to take it very seriously in her life. But if we take it too seriously, it lacks humor. And it lacks the perspective of she doesn't have it that rough, really, in context of a bigger life, right? So the humor that came from Vicky's screenplay and that got picked up again by Michael Small's score um, kind of kept you saying, hey, this is okay. You can laugh. It's okay. You're not laughing at her. You're laughing at the situation or with her or whatever. And, and I think the importance of telling the story with humor is part of the reason people were able to clue in and, and like it, you know? You mentioned Vicky. How closely did you work together? Just, I know the story obviously came from you. And then in mm -hmm. terms of the script, tell me how that relationship worked. Well, we would get together at her apartment and we would talk about, okay, so what should come next? Okay, maybe it's a scene between the two of them and they're arguing about why is she marrying him? Where should it be? Well, let's put it in a bar, you know, okay. So, and then Vicky would go away and write it and bring me pages. And we'd sort of kind of work a number of scenes by two number of scenes till we had a script. But she, she wrote it, I didn't write it. How do you think Making Girlfriends then impacted the rest of your career? Let's talk about what you did after that. I think it, it sort of put me on the map, so to speak. And because of it, I was able to, you know, go out to L.A. where I sold it and, and then make another feature for Ray Stark. And I suppose I could have made some more, but making a film under those conditions, and, and I have to say, in the hotbed of misogyny that was Hollywood at the time, and, and particularly Ray Stark, who was a bit of an ogre. I mean, he would come on the set and uh, run his hand down my back and say, oh, you're wearing a bra today, Claudia. What a pity. Oh my God. To the full set of like 83 union guys in their 50s, plus the cast. You know, the struggle to get to, it's hard to make a film. It's hard to focus on the scene and figure out if it's working or not and what direction to give. And is this direction going to shut them down or is it going to help them? Or, you know, it's really hard to work on your feet and, and direct a scene and make a film. But to make a film with that was just like, why bother? Why? I don't need this. I love directing. I didn't want to go back to all the people I'd asked so many favors of and ask favors again. And I started, uh, I started directing theater, which was fantastic. I directed a lot of theater for Joe Papp and the public and the Manhattan Theater Club and, you know, lots of, and I started working with a lot of new young American playwrights. And that was fantastic. And, you know, where I didn't have the, the concern of a whole lot of money, like in Hollywood. And then I started directing TV. And of course, late, you know, by the 80s, television was the beginning, the late 80s was the be beginning of the renaissance in television, where all the good writers were working for TV, you know, whether it was my so-called life, Winnie Holtzman or 30 something and, you know, all of those shows. And so it was really exciting, you know, and that kept going through to, to Girls, which was the last show I directed for TV. So I didn't miss directing features per se. I love telling stories. And for me, one of the thrills is, is going from one medium to the next. In film, the director is the head of the, the most important person, but that's also a huge burden huge pressure, right? In TV, you get to 
you know, it's the executive producer, the writer producer, that's the top, you know, and the director's the last person hired and the first person fired on a TV series. You know, it's not about the director, but the directing is really important, particularly if you're directing the first season of a show where you're trying to set the character and find the character and how much can you push on likability and yet still, you know, just find the contours of, of the character. And, and that's what I was hired over and over to do is the first season of shows to help them find the tone and the characters. And that was fascinating work, as was theater, you know, because I was working with all my colleagues, my, my writer friends who were the same age. So I didn't particularly miss directing, certainly directing in Hollywood. With Girlfriends now, just finally, because obviously it's being re-released in UK mm -hmm. cinemas, um, any messages for people who are either revisiting it or seeing it on screen for the first time? No, just really enjoy it, you know. I am stung how the film still seems so timely and people are watch it for the first time and it still speaks to their experience or that it, it tell, explains to them what's happening with their granddaughter or whatever, you know, it, it, it's as though the 40 years hadn't passed because the emotional experience feels true to people. And I think because Melanie is so accessible. I could not agree more. And that's what we're always celebrating on Girls on Film. And of course, what we're celebrating with women with movie cameras. So thank yeah. you so much, Claudia, for joining us today. It's been such an honor and it's um, so great, great to meet you. Thank you so much. That was Claudia Weil. Girlfriends is available on DVD in the UK in a restored 4K version. If you're listening in the US and other territories, you can usually rent it digitally from a range of platforms, so check it out. It's worth seeking out. Now, earlier this year, I was lucky enough to go to Cannes Film Festival, where I met not one but two actresses from one of my favourite films, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. They're both making their directorial debuts. First, here's my beach bar chat with Luana Bajrami, who played the maid in Celine Sciamma's drama. Her film, The Hill Where Lionesses Roar, follows three stifled young women from rural Kosovo in search of ambition and independence. Well, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you. It's so lovely to have you here. I'm a huge fan, first of all, of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yeah. So I was so excited to see this film. How did it feel to be back at Cannes with your own film? It's really huge for me when I understood I was coming there and I could bring all the girls and the, the, the guy, the actors uh, here. It was big honor. Well, tell us a little bit more about the film because obviously I've seen it. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and it's an interesting name, um, The Hill Went Lionesses Roar. For the people who haven't seen it, can you explain what the significance of that name is and how it relates to the film? I love the, the figure, the metaphoric of the lionesses because it's like a powerful um, animal. Yes. Not the lion, the lioness. And the hills, it's like the landscape of Kosovo. So the title came up so easily, like it was an evidence. I love that. We need more female animals in films and referred to in films. I'm always saying this, it's not just about, you know, gender is very significant. Now, the setting is really interesting to me because I didn't know much about what it's like to live in Kosovo, um, but you do. Tell me a bit about that from your experience and why you wanted to tell this story. I was born in France, but I grew up there in Kosovo. And the, the village, the town we see in the film is the town where, where I grew up, and it was important for me to, to show it. And also it was important for me to change the point of view of Kosovo because when you talk about Kosovo now, you, you think about war, but there are like incredible faces, the, the girls, 
what steps did you take as a writer and director to make sure that it appeals to lots of people and not just people who are teenagers now? It was like really important for me to make it universal and to make it timeless. Like we don't know when this film happens because it could happen anytime. And the process was really interesting because I wrote it so fast and the idea came up like that because first of all, I wanted a trio of girls, super powerful. And then it told so much around youth and everything. And I just kept working in this way. Was it very important for you, for all the central characters to be female? If so, why? Yes, it was because I think myself, I'm a woman and more, it was more possible for me to talk about that. I don't know, I wanted to see a film. I wanted to make a film, I wanted to see. And it's rare in a way to, to have three girls like that. And I get really inspired by, by powerful woman characters, like for example, Beatrix and Kill Bill. I don't know, I love her. Uh, I have so much films about that. Yeah, that was the, the inspiration. Well, you were only 18 when you made this, correct? Talk to me more about the inspirations that you sought from and you're self-taught. So, I mean, where, where did you get this amazing creativity and talent from? Is it from watching other people direct? Um, did you make short films? I made a ton of short films, like Amateur, I mean, with my camcorder. But uh, I began in this industry as an actress at 10 years old. And there I discovered the set and everything. But then uh, I wanted to make a school of cinema, but uh, I worked with so much cineast filmmakers. They teach me how it goes. And just being on set, it teaches me that. So I kept writing and everything. And I think I remembered that I promised myself, you have to make a feature film before 18 years old. And when I remember that like flashback it was like nice i did it that's extraordinary most people would say before they're 30 or something and you say like 18 i'm so impressed ambitious <laughs> you are ambitious what's what's next for you next is to keep uh, being an actress because i love that also and trying to manage to be director and actress at the same time and i'm working on my next feature film so that's exciting. I look forward to seeing that. Um, but on the subject of great female directors in Cannes, when I first saw Portrait of a Lady on Fire in Cannes, it was a magical moment. It was a classic film and a feminist film. For you, particularly from a feminist point of view, tell me the most precious memories of making that. We were so close to each other on that set. And Céline was really, she supported me in the beginning in becoming a, a filmmaker i mean she asked me like in the middle of a scene she came to me and she said hey are you sure you just want to be an actress and i was like what do you mean by that and she said i think you want to be a director i see it in your eyes and i was like my god like she just saw it in me and it gave me maybe that first step like go for it girl and such powerful women in this film, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, it impacted my life really.
I also caught up with Noemi Merlon on a sunny rooftop in Cannes. She played the leading role of the painter Marianne in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. She's made a film starring herself and her own boyfriend, Jimmy Nikolai Kovac, and it charts an unexpected romance on a Romanian Hindu gone wrong. Congratulations on the film and welcome to Girls on Film, the podcast. Thank you. Um, tell me about the story behind the film, why you wanted to tell this story. I wanted to talk about freedom. I wanted to talk about that love, that friendship, um, has no barriers of, uh, of age, of culture, of, uh, and it's for the love story, as long as there is a, a mutual love and strong love and attention of observation, listening to, to the other, uh, I think it was interesting to start to talk about consent, consent with two persons who was really, really far from on the paper from each other. Right, it's, very different in real yeah, life. Yes, uh, yes. It's, it, I've, I think it was a good start point to talk about consent because mm -hmm. there is always uh, power somewhere. Right, uh, yes, a power uh, dynamic between But two what people. is important is to uh, be aware of it uh, and not use it. So yeah, so that was important. And uh, Jimmy, who plays Nino and, and, and write the movie with me, uh, add the first impulse, uh, give the first impulse and give the idea of doing that film, to talk about this story. I love that sense of community and positivity. It's um, very important to us on the podcast, talking about representation and tackling people's prejudices. I think this is very good in this film. Also, how refreshing, he's a younger man. Can you talk to me about the decision to have that dynamic? Because so often we see a younger woman and an older man on screen. To reverse this yes. was also important because it exists. I mean, it's, 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 it was our love story. So, and we, Jimmy thought it was interesting to tell it because love sometimes, you know, has no age. So, and I think the, the character of Nino, how we wanted to work on it, is not the cliche of, uh, you know, a guy, a young guy, viril, uh, macho, yeah. or I don't know. He wanted to, to see who he really is, and it was really important uh, for us, for him, to show that there is a part of fem a feminine part, yeah. he is really soft, he is really alikut, listening. Yes. With the, the group of the girl, he's almost part of the group as a girl, you know, so sometimes it's like there is, it's the same. And it was really important to show that too. I like that fact that you have a very sensitive man in this story. It's also very refreshing. Que savez-vous de mon futur mariage? Rien. C'est tout ce que j'en sais aussi. Quand allez-vous vous marier? Je ne sais pas si je vais me marier. C'est parce que vous pouvez choisir que vous ne me comprenez pas. Je vous comprends. What are your most cherished memories, your happiest memories of Portrait? Did you expect people to fall in love with this film as much as they did? No, you, ne you, you never expect that because mm. it's, it's so huge and, and nice, you, yeah. you hope. But um, in the shooting, we were all living in the same house, in the same house, all the girls. And we had like great, great moments of my best memories. It's at night when we... We create to, all together uh, this shooting. Uh, I mean, we were shooting at night. We were talking about all oh, what we did and also our lives. And it was really... Uh, sort of bonding experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and Joanna told me that Celine encouraged her to direct. Um, did you speak to Celine about this film? Yeah, I speak to Celine about this film. Uh, Luana also about her film. 
uh, it's uh, I have Celine and other uh, uh, person like that, women like that who really uh, I think about Emmanuel Berco, who is also actress and director. Mm-hmm. It's women who really gives me, you know, go, 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 yes. go for it. <laughs> like uh, go, do it. Don't, don't ask, uh, don't ask the permission. Yes. You know, <laughs> just go for it. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yes. Do you think there is a connection between the fact that you were both in that film and now you're making these very emotional, real films? Oh uh, yeah, I think there is a big connection with portrait because because it gives us uh, confidence to uh, as women uh, to to dare to express ourselves and. Uh, Do you feel things are getting better in terms of female directors? I know in France perhaps it's a little better than in other countries. There are more perhaps. I think it's getting better, but I think there is still a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. Work doesn't mean like ah, we have to fight. Yeah, we have to fight, but it can be. uh, What I feel is yes. uh, Sometimes I still have this sensation of oh, an actress would direct. You still have this feeling that you you take too much space. You know, Uh, sometimes you still have this feeling, even if it's not really said. You hear it, you feel it. It will change, and it will change because we are more and more in sorority and uh, more and more uh, men also want so that uh, things uh, like that change so yes I, I want to be positive about that do you think male actors have the same kind of criticism? I don't think so <laughs> I would agree with you yes <laughs> exactly and I think do you think as women as well sometimes we we ask permission too much because we the way we've been brought up Oh yes, yes. It's always. Uh, yeah. I started as a model, and uh, and I wanted to be an actress. And uh, when I started to be, a, I wanted to be actress. They said, "No, you're a model, and you know, model don't talk. You know, you don't talk." Yeah. And then, yeah. uh, so I started to talk as an actress, but I had to say, "I can't be an actress. I'm not just a model, you know." And it's the same as a director. I'm an actress, but I have also things to say, and it's it's not because I'm an actress that I can be something else also, and a director. Is a person first. I was some work was something to say, creation. There is no, uh, you know, no rules. And so why not? And uh, I think uh, more and more actresses, uh, women, uh, direct their movies because we we have so much things to say because we miss so many. We miss so many of our stories. We miss all of our story and history. So we have a lot of things to say. So maybe that's why we, we talk a lot about ourselves because we have to start with this. Like we yes. have a lot to say. Yes, so. absolutely. Congratulations again. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That was Luana, Bajrami and Noemi Merlon. Noemi's film, Mi Iubita Mon Amour, is still seeking in a UK distributor, as is The Hill Where Lionesses Roar. Fingers crossed we'll see them on a British screen soon. Meantime, you can watch Noemi and Luana in Portrait of a Lady on Fire on Movie Now. My final interview is with Sean Hader, the director of a lovely film called Coda, and its star, Amelia Jones, who is a great actress and also the daughter of singer and presenter Alad Jones. Coda tells the story of 17-year-old Ruby, who's the only hearing member of her family. She acts as an interpreter for her deaf parents and brother while working on the family fishing boat. But Ruby has a secret. She loves to sing and her school teacher encourages her in this. Here's what the filmmakers had to say about this musical crowd pleaser with the difference. Well, listen, congratulations on Coda. Thank you for making me laugh and cry in all the right places. It's a wonderful film. 
I wanted to ask you both first individually, what made you passionate about wanting to tell this story? Sean, if I could start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm, as a storyteller and a filmmaker, I'm always just looking for stories that move me emotionally. And, you know, I had just made my film Tallulah and I'd been at Sundance with it in 2016. And I had come back and was sort of trying to figure out what I wanted my next project to be. And I went in to meet with Lionsgate because they wanted to do a remake of this French film, La Famille Bellier. And I watched the film and it, and it was an imperfect film, but the story was very moving to me and the, and the Coda experience was very moving to me. And I thought that there was potential to really dig in and, and dig into this character and the turmoil she was in and sort of what, what the actual reality of those different tensions that were pulling on her were. And also to just really explore deaf culture and um, the authenticity of those characters in a way um, that excited me and made me want to learn and dig in and research. Thank you. And Amelia, why did you want to be a part of this? For so many reasons. Uh, I loved after talking to Sean before I was cast that you know, there was such an emphasis on authenticity. I loved how Sean spoke about the project. She was so passionate about it. I loved that she told me she was going to learn sign language. I fell in love with the Rossi family. I love that, you know, they're, they're a dysfunctional, relatable family. And also, you know, it's a family and, and a culture that's rarely seen on screen. And I, and I really loved that. And I guess Ruby, you know, roles like Ruby don't come along very often. The minute I read the script, I thought, whoever gets to play this role is a very, very, very lucky actress because it's not every role that, you know, you get to learn three skills. You're lucky if it's one skill, you know, piano or writing or something, but, you know, singing, sign and fishing, I thought is is going to be a big, big challenge. And, and I love a challenge. I get a feeling that I never, 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 never had before. You're the girl with the deaf family? Yeah. yeah. And you sing. Interesting. Which was the biggest challenge of those three for you? They were all, I guess, challenging in their own way. But I, I have to say uh, singing and signing together was the most challenging. Because I think, I mean, Sean, you can probably talk about this too, but when, for instance, you're doing your coverage, you may get five or six takes. And in the edit, you have five or six takes to choose from. Whereas when I was going into Both Sides Now, it was if my sign language wasn't perfect in every single take, well, they can only use the one that's perfect. So suddenly if you're doing four takes, but your sign language is only correct or completely correct in one of them, you can only use that take. And in the three, say your singing might have been better in the other take or your acting, your, your, you know, tonally might have been more on point in another take. Suddenly you can't use that. So I guess it was a little bit daunting and I was a bit nervous because I knew that I had to kind of go into that scene trying to be as perfect as possible with every... <laughs> Uh, emotion and, and skill, I guess. I made things really hard for Amelia. <laughs> I made things really hard by recording the music live on set. You know, I think a lot of times with a lot of music in a film, you will either pre-record the music or you will redo it and post. And because I wanted to capture, I wanted to capture this woman discovering her voice and, and 
with all of the imperfections that come in the moment, but that put a lot of pressure on Amelia because, you know, we were capturing the moment live in the take. And like she said, it was a lot to ask to be signing and singing and trying to nail both at once. And she did an amazing job, but I think, you know, it was a diff, it was a challenge because of the way I wanted to shoot it. Well, I love hearing it live. I must say, and bravo for that choice. And obviously you massively pulled it off. Sean, for you as a filmmaker, um, what were you juggling on this film? That was a particular challenge that you hadn't encountered before? I think the three the three things for me were the the music, the the ASL, you know, and I say the ASL mainly like facilitating communication on the set and making sure that, you know, everybody was on the same page and that we were finding a new way to work, honestly. And then the fishing was such a production. I mean, I remember meeting with my Marine coordinator first. And when I told him I wanted to have this family be ground fishermen, you know, where they drag the big nets along the bottom of the ocean, he was like, are you kidding? Like, can they please be lobstermen? That's insane to want to shoot, you know, a dragger boat. So that was a lot. I think the fishing stuff was really fun, but it was really daunting. And like I said, the music we were capturing it live on set and we were working with a real choir and my music producers um, Marius DeVries and Nick Baxter had done an amazing job with this choir of making arrangements and you know but it was that live performance feeling of capturing that and so I think and then in terms of the ASL communication you know it was just figuring out like how many interpreters we needed and where they needed to be and you know how we were going to make a track vocal track for my editor so that when he was cutting an ASL scene he could have a vocal track to cut to and and all of that and I think it worked really beautifully and I was lucky to have two ASL masters on set um well Alexandria Wales in prep and then Ann Tomasetti on set who were also really key for me and being by the monitor at all times. And I think Amelia can speak to this being with her to be their eyes on the ASL and on all of the ASL scenes in the movie and make sure that the signs were in frame and, you know, that everything was reading really well. So those were the big areas of, of creative problem solving. And well solved, may I say. And you've made such an accessible and enjoyable film, but one that obviously feels really important in terms of representation. Amelia, could I ask you um, sort of what you came out of you know, feeling emotionally after this film in terms of hopefully a step forward, I think, for representation of deaf characters on screen. I know. Well, I mean, as I said before, that's what drew me to the project. And then working on it, I learned so much. And I was so grateful that I had Anne Tomasetti and Alexandra Wales, who were the ASL directors, and they really, really, really pushed me. And I and I loved that. And then I had Troy, Daniel and Marley and kind of everybody, all the interpreters who were coders, um, and all our deaf consultants and Troy, Daniel, and Mali, they kind of welcomed me and Sean with open arms and kind of took me under their wing and, and really helped me grow and learn. And I, I felt so grateful that I was able to to kind of immerse myself in this new world and, and learn ASL. And I just, I hope that, you know, this is a sign that times are changing. And, and I feel like I hope when people watch this film they are going to take a lot away from it. You know, they're going to want to learn sign language, know more about the culture. Or even, you know, CODA is not representing a universal CODA or deaf experience. This is just one story. So I'm hoping, you know, there are so many more stories out there. So I'm hoping that people are then going to want to, you know, take these stories on and, and tell these, these amazing people's journeys and things. And I'm interested, um, Sean, to speak to you a little bit about the use of both music and silence in different parts of this film to really encourage empathy 
with the characters, which I think you did beautifully. Well, it was an interesting thing, you know, when we were prepping the movie, it was because it hadn't, I hadn't seen it a lot in film. So I wasn't sure how much patience a hearing audience would have for ASL scenes, you know, and, and I felt it's a very cinematic language, you know, it's beautiful to watch it. It's visual, it's exciting, it's entertaining to, to, to watch. And so I felt like I didn't want, you know, especially the hearing character to be speaking through those scenes. And I think even Amelia, we had a couple of scripted moments more than we had in the film where she was supposed to be speaking and signing. And Amelia was like, this is too hard. Like, I just want to sign. I think Ruby would just be signing. There's no reason it felt for her wrong to speak in this moment. In it way. felt wrong and it's not pure ASL. And I think you, the more Amelia was like living in deaf culture and hanging out with our deaf cast, it just didn't you start to realize like simcomming, which is what it's called when you, when you speak and sign at the same time, I want to do the sign for it as I'm, as I'm talking. Um, but it's, it's really unnatural. You know, it's, it's sort of something that you do if you're trying to include a hearing person and a deaf person in the same conversation casually at a party, but it's not, you know, it's not the way that you want to, to sign the language. And so, and so I was really excited by the silence. And in fact, these ASL scenes are not silent, you know? And so I made sure that all of those little intimate sounds that we loved all of our actors. And I remember trying to put a love mic on Marley Matlin and she was like, nobody ever loves me. Why are you loving me? And I was like, <laughs> because you're making all of these quiet, intimate noises. It's the rustle of your clothes as your hands hit. It's the way your fingers slap each other. It's, you know, small vocalizations or you know, murmurs that, that really create this very intimate, beautiful scene. And so all of those little sounds I worked with, with my sound designer to fill the world, you know, and, and make sure that those scenes felt as intimate as they feel when you're in them. And then of course we had these great music scenes that were fun and, and lively with the choir. And so what I love at the beginning of the film is sort of walking a hearing audience slowly into it. You know, if you'll notice, if you watch the movie again, in the beginning, it's sort of an ASL scene and then like a fun choir scene and then an ASL scene. But by the end of the film, there's, you know, maybe five ASL scenes in a row. And I think at that point, the audience is in it and, and just fully invested in the characters and doesn't even notice that they're watching an ASL scene anymore. And so I love that about it. You know, I love that no audience member has ever told me like, oh, it was weird to watch the ASL scenes. It just feels like you love this family and you're invested in them and their their issues. And and that's the ride that you're on. So and like Amelia said, you know, we I had an interpreter who's been working on the project who said, I'm a professional interpreter and my kids have never expressed an interest in learning sign. And, and then they watched Coda and they were both like, we want to learn to sign. And he was like, I do this for a living. I'm your dad. Like, why wouldn't you want to learn to sign before now? But I think there's something about taking that emotional ride in the movie where people are really intrigued by it and want to and want to learn. Could I wrap by asking you both, do you think in some ways that this is also a feminist film? Amelia first. I love that our DOP, Paula, was, was a woman. Sean is one of the strongest women I've ever met. And I liked that it was a female lead too. I, you know, it's and and Marley too. I liked that it was very female heavy. And I think, you know, I'm hoping that this again means times are changing. I, I find a lot of times now I'll I'll be sent a script and it's a woman, and you know, I'm not looking for it. It's just coming. And I think, you know, that's a sign that things are moving in the right direction. And I think to back that up, I mean, I I think 
anything I make is a feminist film because of the crew that I put together. You know, I'm always looking with my department heads to surround myself with other women that are really talented. And so most of my department heads, my production designer, you know, my costume designer, my DP are women. And I think those positions, particularly DP, can be unusual in a film. And so it's something that I've kind of done. My first movie as well was that. And so I think it is definitely in the people that you're hiring and collaborating with as well as the story you're telling. And so in that way, I totally, I mean, I feel like I hope that every project has that aura to it that I do. Wonderful. Well, congratulations again on the film and thank you so much for joining Girls on Film. Thank you so much Thanks for, for having, having us. us. I want to do this. There are plenty of pretty voices with nothing to say. Do you have something to say? I can't stay with you for the rest of my life. I've never done anything without my family before. That was Sean Hader and Amelia Jones. You can watch Coda now on Apple TV+. Before I go, I'd like to give a shout out to another brilliant film podcast, Clash of the Titles. Each week, Alex, Vicky and Chris thrust a pair of films with something in common into the arena of combat, with only one emerging as the victor. You can hear me fighting the feminist corner in their recent episodes pitting Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid against Thelma and Louise. Find them wherever you get your pods. That's it for today's Girls on Film. We'll be back soon. Meantime, we post daily film recommendations on our social media channels, so do check those out. If you're listening to this pod when it's just come out, then there's still time to grab tickets to Girls on Film Live at the London Podcast Festival on Thursday the 9th of September 2021. And you can find a booking link in the show notes. Girls on Film is an HLA production. Brought to you by executive producer Heather Archibald, assistant producer Heather Dempsey, and audio producer Emma Butt. Thanks also to our wonderful principal partner, Peter Brewer. Thanks for joining me, Anna Smith, and our guests, Claudia Weil, Luana Bajrami, Noemi Merlon, Sean Heder, and Amelia Jones. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. What are you working on now? Well, I have a few things cooking. Mm.